This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Good evening, Jack Doshin. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. So we'll start off with the Dharma talk. Um, the Dharma talk is called What is Enlightenment? Part one. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to finish it, so I'll have to finish it tomorrow evening. So I got as far as I could today. So I will uh, start. So in this talk this evening, I'm going to share with you my understanding of enlightenment, although we don't quite get to that part, I don't think. We almost get to that part. <laughs> so before I do that, I need to make it clear that no one can tell you that you've finally made it. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's in my experience, at least, it's not like that. So Zen is not a 12-step program with a pot of gold at the end. However, I do think it is possible to, to develop an ongoing shared dialogical understanding of what we mean by enlightenment. And this shared understanding is going to continue to evolve as long as we're practicing together. That's been my own lived experience over the past 20 years with Barry. Um, therefore, I want to encourage you to always question for yourself what enlightenment is. Because really, there is no authority on this topic. It's not a question of you believing someone's story about enlightenment. Enlightenment is not an idea. Enlightenment is not something that can be measured by a brain scan, thank goodness. But I do believe questions can be helpful. So I want to encourage you to find a question that means something to you. Like if you were doing a research thesis at uni, what is your research question? And bring it to me in the Dokusan room. For example, what exactly does it mean not to be caught in the self-centered dream. What's the difference? What is it like to live your life being just this moment? Or some other questions you might think of. Questions are very good, more important than the, the answers. If you get a good question, it can open up a lot. More important than necessarily getting the answers. So we are continuing a tradition following in the footsteps of Siddhartha, who was not content with the received wisdom and religions of his time, and went on to find his own way for himself. We all must follow the same path as the Buddha, 
each generation must renew understanding of the truth of reality, which is what we call Dharma. Dharma includes the teachings and is also the name for reality in Buddhism. The Dharma teaches both directly as reality, life as itself, and through the recorded teachings of the Buddha, that nothing is permanent, including the Dharma teachings themselves. So the Dharma is not set in concrete. We will continue to reinterpret them according to our own time and place. When we speak of understanding the truth of reality, think more about uncovering reality. We uncover reality by asking questions, by listening, by paying attention, and by sitting in Zazen. The last words of the Buddha are sometimes translated as be a lamp unto yourself, or simply you are light, be the light. See what is illuminated when you pay attention. Don't put anyone in a place of authority above you. As Joko says, your true teacher is you. And we practice realizing this you. So practice and realization are inseparable. How we pay attention, for example, how we attend to our world is practice. World and self are a unity. We can't have one without the other. We find ourselves in our world with others. At times it has a sense of familiarity. We feel at home in my world. But sometimes because of traumatic disruption or transportation, the world loses its sense of familiarity and we no longer feel at home in the world. We also always find ourselves in some kind of mood of some kind. If we are caught in a depressive mood or a paranoid mood, again, the world can feel hostile and we feel alienated and isolated. In a way, we could describe practice as uncovering our original sense of being at home in the world or uncovering our original sense of okayness. <clears throat> so I am interested in exploring our lived experience of enlightenment and everyone's lived experience of enlightenment is going to be different. But there may also be some commonalities so that we can develop a shared understanding together. And that's what the open circle is for, to develop a shared understanding of <coughs> our experience of practice recognizing both commonalities and differences. That is why I see us all as Dharma friends or Dharma companions on the journey together, rather than as teachers and students. It is true that we need to appoint someone who is willing to take on the role of a teacher. In the same way, we need someone to take on the role of the cook. It doesn't mean that the teacher's understanding is necessarily more profound. 
It doesn't mean that the cook is necessarily the best chef amongst us. It just means that they have a good enough understanding that has been recognized by another teacher and they are willing to take on the role. Not everyone will want to be a teacher. In fact, I would probably you know, counsel you against the idea. You do a lot of work for no pay. And also, in our Sangha, the teacher can only recommend someone to the Sangha to be appointed as a teacher. The final endorsement of a teacher resides in the Sangha through the committee. It's the Sangha who determines who will be appointed in the role of teacher. And the Sangha can also withdraw their endorsement of a teacher. This encourages the Sangha to be self-determining in the life of the evolution of Ozen. Each generation passes on the Dharma, but the Dharma can never be the same. It changes over time and place. Everything changes. Everything is impermanent, including the Dharma. I have recently been studying how the meaning of Buddha nature changed during the years the Dharma traveled from India to China. How the language and local traditions of China integrated Buddha nature into the language of their culture. So using words such as the Tao or the Way. In the same way, we are remaking the understanding of the Dharma, drawing on understandings from Western philosophy and psychotherapy. So let's start with the original story or a version of the original story. We have already mentioned how the Buddha was not content with the received teachings, ascetic practices, and the caste-based Brahmanical religions of his time and place. This is the first teaching for us. The Dharma is not about belief. It is about inquiring into reality and discovering what truth reveals about this reality. We can't do this only by listening or reading Dharma talks, although that is important. We have to be continually doing the practice ourselves. And practice is circular. We start with some basic understanding. We practice. We reflect back on our practice and how that relates to our understanding. We revise our understanding. We talk to a friend in the Dharma who has a different understanding. We sit more zazen. We revise our understanding and so on. The circle of understanding is forever deepening and expanding, but we never arrive at the truth. So back to the story. After trying out all the ascetic practices of his time and place, Siddhartha was still in conflict. He gave up these practices, took some nourishing food, and sat near the river under a tree. He made a resolution not to get up until he had resolved his conflict. The key meaning for us here is his resoluteness, his determination to resolve what was troubling him. This is the kind of resoluteness that Zen practitioners bring to Seshin. 
Finally, one morning, he looked up at the morning star. He had seen the morning star many times before. So what was it about that morning? What did he see that he hadn't seen before? That's a question you can keep coming back to. Um, in Barry Majid's third book, <coughs> the first chapter, I think, is on this particular question about what he saw when he saw the morning star. We might talk more about that tomorrow. But the great thing about this is that there is no right, there is no right answer to what he experienced. Or it might be better to say, we need to become the answer in how we live our life. <coughs> Only you can live your life. You can read a story of someone's enlightenment experience, but it is not your enlightenment experience. The question is, and the big question is really, is enlightenment an intersubjective experience like time and space and causality that we can that can be confirmed by a teacher? Or is it a unique subjective experience? So, you know, we can all share our experience of time and space and causality. The sun always rises in the morning. If I put the kettle on the stove, it'll start to boil. We can all, we all have common experiences of that, of that. We can come to a common understanding of this intersubjectively verified by all of us. But is enlightenment something that can be? Well, this is a very interesting question. The Zen lineage is founded on the assumption that it, it is an intersubjective experience that can be confirmed by the teacher. As the preface in Wuman states, the Wuman's preface in the Gateless Barrier Collection of Commands, when you pass through the barrier, he says, you will walk hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers in the successive generations of your lineage. When you pass through the barrier, when you become in, have your enlightenment experience, you'll be walking hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers. In the Rinzai tradition, which specializes in koans, there are these so-called checking questions to check the understanding of the student so that the teacher can verify his or her enlightenment experience. However, having been through this process myself, I can personally testify that this is certainly not a simple, transparent process. Also, if we see enlightenment as an event, such as a Kensho experience, seeing into one's true nature. If you want to read about some stories of Kensho experiences, there's quite a few of them in the Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, one of the first books that was published in the West about Zen Buddhism in 1968. If we see enlightenment as an event, such as a Kensho, then we should be talking about enlightening experiences rather than enlightenment. Enlightenment is a noun which the Oxford Learner Dictionary, which I looked up today, defines as 
knowledge about an understanding of something, the process of understanding. So here is the first clue. I would rather conceive of enlightenment as the process of coming to an understanding of something. And I would prefer to see this as a dialogical understanding, circular in nature, with nobody having the authority to tell me whether or not I have passed a kind. The process of developing mutual understanding between Dharma friends, which is a genuine two-way process, is something I much prefer rather than having a hierarchy where the teacher is the authority on passing the student, rather like an exam. When it comes to the academic study of so-called mystical or enlightenment experiences in the West, there are two competing paradigms. The first and most well-known is called perennialism or the perennial philosophy, named after the book written by Aldous Huxley in 1945. The second paradigm is sometimes called contextualism. So basically, I will just unpack those two paradigms for you, because they're quite important and they're quite different. So perennialism, one of the first movements in the West to really have perennialism at its basis was what's called theosophy. And there was a, a, uh, a teacher called Madame Blavatsky who wrote a book called The Secret Doctrine. And the, uh, she was one of the founders of theosophy with a number of other people. We won't go into that. I mean, there's a very interesting story in theosophy because that's where Krishnamurti came from. He was going to be launched as the next Buddha in Melbourne cricket ground, but he never, he, he resigned from that pre-assigned role before that could happen. So theosophy basically thought and argued that all the, all the kind of esoteric core of all the religions was all pointing to the one same truth. That there was one truth. And when at the core of all these religions is the one truth. Aldous Huxley argued very similarly in his book, The Perennial Philosophy. And in a way, Kel, Ken Wilbur is an example of a contemporary perennialist, as is Rupert Spira and many other people. So the metaphor of perennialism, what sums up perennialism is one mountain, many paths. You've probably heard that expression. So one mountain being reality or the truth, and there are many paths to the same peak or summit, many roads up the mountain, but they all end up at the same mountain peak. So basically what perennialism argues is that the experience of enlightenment is transcultural and transhistorical. Contextualism provides us with the alternative. One ocean, many shores, and each shore is different. There are many beaches lapping the shore of the great ocean 
But truth is never absolute. It always takes the form of partial disclosure because truth, when you think about it, is inseparable from the being there of a human being. And human beings, we are historical and cultural beings. The horizon of our understanding is always limited by our cultural and historical positioning. According to this perspective, it is impossible to have a trans-historical and trans-cultural experience. Hence, all mystical or enlightenment experiences, as any other human experience, are mediated, shaped, and constituted by the language, culture, doctrinal beliefs, and soteriological expectations of the traditions in which they occur. So coming back to Zen, taking the contextual position, contextualist position, we have to let go of the notion that we will walk hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers in the successive generations of our lineage, the hair of our eyebrows entangled with theirs, seeing with the same eyes and hearing with the same ears. We are not going to be seeing with the same eyes or hearing with the same ears as our Chinese ancestors who were living hundreds of years ago. We're going to be seeing with our eyes and hearing with our ears. And that's going to be different according to the contextualist position. And according to this position, then we have to rediscover what enlightenment means for us here and now in this time and place. So I will share tomorrow now, uh, some of my understandings of what I think enlightenment is. But first of all, I want to acknowledge my teacher. My ongoing dialogue with Barry over the past 20 years has shaped my understanding for better or worse, which highlights again the importance of choice, who you choose to enter into a relationship and a dialogue with is crucial. And it's going to influence your understanding of what enlightenment means to you. When you read Barry's books, um, before getting to discuss what enlightenment is, he talks about what he calls curative fantasies. He says, we all start with a curative fantasy about what enlightenment is and what it will do for us. These curative fantasies are like our preconceptions. We have to start somewhere. Um, for example, we might have seen a movie about the Buddha or a movie about Dogen. In fact, there is a movie made about the life of Dogen, which is not bad, which you can view on YouTube. And there's a famous chapter in Dogen's life story when he is at the monastery in China. And his master says something like, mind and body drops away and it is recorded at this moment was dogen's great enlightenment in the movie from my memory not, not quite like this but um, the movie tries to portray this scene with dogen sitting in a full lotus position floating up in the air 
with all these bright colours flashing in the background. So when you find yourself floating in mid-air with colours flashing all around you and you are not on acid, you better come straight away to the docker center room and tell me so that I can confirm your experience and give you your certificate of enlightenment. So I will finish the, for tonight and we'll continue tomorrow evening when I'll share with you some understandings of enlightenment that I've gained over the past 20 years in my ongoing dialogue with Barry. So thank you.